Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. For today's bonus episode of Life on the Line, we spoke with Dr. Carl James at the Australian War Memorial. Carl is a senior historian with the memorial a published author, and a general history extraordinaire. Thomas Kay spoke with Carl about the War Memorial's upcoming exhibit, The History of Australia's Special Forces. I'm Thomas Kay and I'm joined today by Dr Carl James. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. So to start us off, um, when did Australia's Special Forces form and what was the catalyst for it? The special forces that we know or would recognise today really go back to the 1950s when you had the formation of the what became the Special Air Service Regiment in about 1956, as well as one commando company. But in many ways, the origins of what we describe as special forces really go back to the Second World War for Australia. Well, it's not just Australia, it's really across the board. Um, in the lead up to the Second World War, you had countries such as Germany, Italy, um, and then during the war, you also had Britain, the United States, and then later on Australia, developing a sort of a special sort of uh, capability. So with the Germans in particular, they started to use paratroopers. Uh, the Italian frogmen were very influential in 1940, 41, particularly in the Mediterranean. And then with the British Army, you have the development with David Sterling, the formation of the SAS, as well as the commandos too. I mean, the commandos go back to 1940. Uh, Germany had occupied most of Western Europe. The Britain, well, really at that stage, just Britain standing alone, fallen back to the continent, uh, well, back to Britain. Winston Churchill wants to come up this new force called commandos, basically to, to raid occupied Europe, to leave a trail of corpses, to take the war to the enemy, to raid and harass the Germans. Uh, and so that's how commandos come about. So that's within the, the broader sphere of the war. Uh, and then because Australia was a British patent army, once the British decide to raise commando units, the Australians do as well. So we have independent companies that are raised in 1941, um, and they're really there to train uh, to act as guerrillas to operate independently um, and you also have things such as special operations australia which is called that was the name but the better known by the services reconnaissance department so that was a code name for soa uh, and that's where you have things like m and z special unit as well as um, air force personnel navy personnel and other allied personnel so it's guys with special operations australia who are dropping in behind the lines into borneo in 1945 to work with the local people against the occupying japanese so in many ways those early characteristics and capabilities such as insertion by air by land or by sea were developed in Australia during the Second World War. They were then went into a hiatus at the end of the war, returning in the, 19, in the mid-1950s, although it's a capability that the Australian military isn't really sure how to use. Um, the first employment of the SAS is in the mid-1960s during the Borneo confrontation, but it's really in Vietnam when the SAS really develops its reputation as a as phantoms of the jungle, um, carrying out long-range patrols in, deep into enemy territory, harassing the enemy, in this case it's the Viet Cong, but really more to act as reconnaissance 
or deep surveillance to see that to provide the task force command as as their sort of eyes and ears um, to develop that long range capability. So that's the historic origins, and then continues into Australia during the 1980s, um, what the SAS describes the long peace. So from the end of the Vietnam War until about East Timor in 99, during those 20 years, the ADF is not doing, is really doing very little. Um, there's peacekeeping and humanitarian operations, but no really war fighting. So in the early, in the late 70s, early 1980s, there's a little bit of the SAS is really struggling for a role. Um, it then picks up in about 19, 80, a counter-terrorist capability, which gives the SAS a purpose. So it's still doing its long-range patrol, patrolling, um, patrolling the north of Australia, which is always going to be its bread and butter, but picks up this counter-terrorist capability, um, which you see and we would recognise for about the next 20 years. And then post 9-11, everything changes. Um, you see the expansion of Australian Special Forces. So now there is the SAS, there's two commando regiment, which used to be four RAR, brackets commando, one commando regiment, special operations engineer regiment. Uh, there's a special operations logistics squadron. There are um, training centres. So really 9-11 is a game changer in terms of how Australia uses its special forces capabilities. And that's also are reflected in Western armies. So you see this in Britain, United States, Germany, Europe, um, particularly in the war on terror, a lot of that kicking indoors, surveillance targeting um, is being done by special forces rather than conventional forces. So if you look back, certainly the original capabilities go back to the Second World War. From Australia's point of view, we pick it up in the 1950s. And then 9-11, it's a bit of a game changer. Well, it's a total game changer. Um, and you see this expansion. And during the last sort of 15, 16, 17 years or so, this is when Special Forces really becomes the force of choice or the capability of choice for a government to deploy in an emergency. And historically, there are two distinct branches of Australia's special forces, the commandos and the SAS. So we're thinking about Australia's special operation forces, the, the bulk of those, there's really about 2,000 within um, 2,000 full-time soldiers at the moment within our special operations command called SOCOM. Uh, and the biggest groups are certainly the SASR, so Special Air Services Regiment, as well as your one and two commando regiments. Historically, the difference between, say, the SAS and commandos it does go back to roles and capabilities. So the SAS have this surveillance reconnaissance tradition as well as a counter-terrorist role, and they're also based in the West, West Australia. The commandos, one and two commando, but more so two commando, it is a full-time unit. More of an emphasis on, well, historically, on raiding. So the SAS will go in, observe, eyes, um, as you saw in Iraq in 2003, carried out a lot of reconnaissance in the Western desert, then once they moved to El Al-Assad Air Base, they did help secure the air base, but then they're reinforced with the, the commando company um, from 4 IRR, bracket commando. So the commandos are structured a little bit differently. They have more heavy weapons. So they have mortars, for example. So you have more guys with bigger guns. Um, and they have taken on this direct targeting role or direct action role. So you would think if you're in Afghanistan, you have SAS operators in an overwatch position looking onto a compound, um, if they can see a target, then they may call in, yep, targets there is identified, and then there'll be an attack onto the compound, and that may be led by um, the commando element. So the commanders will go in, they'll kick in the doors, either target the objective, um, question detainees. But they're in Afghanistan, what we saw was a lot of kind of crossover. So historically, there are differences. Um, 
But I think operationally, it sometimes comes down to who's around, who's doing what job, um, particularly, say, in Afghanistan. And the other difference, too, is from a counter-terrorist role, particularly with TAG West and then TAG East, is that the commanders are in the east coast of Australia. So if we're thinking about responding to a terrorist in a domestic environment, if something occurs on the east coast of Australia in a highly populated area, such as Brisbane, Sydney or Melbourne, TAG East will get there first, whereas if it's in the west, um, if it occurs on an oil rig or if it's at a ship, then it'll be TAG West, which is the SAS. So they are essentially two similar units, different histories, two different tribes in many ways, but they do have a different role. And that role has always changed. It may be that in years to come, there may be more of a crossover between reconnaissance and direct action, uh, but it's, we'll just have to wait and see. And the other thing too, is that we don't really know. Like these guys, they operate in the shadows. The whole thing about special forces is they are secret. They are clandestine operations. And what we've seen from the 1980s onwards was once the SAS and then later on the commanders, but once um, Australian special forces took on a counter-terrorist role, they all assumed their protected identities. So their Private A, their Sergeant B, um, in terms of the public, you can't reveal their face. You don't show, that's why there's no photographs of their faces, that's why they don't have names, because it's all their protected identity, which goes back to their counter-terrorist stuff, so that um, you know, the bad guys can't target them. Can you tell me about the different land, air and sea specialties? With Australia's Special Forces, um, they're trained for different insertion methods by air, land, by sea. So their mobility, so working vehicles, often uh, we've seen patrol vehicles, long-range patrol vehicles, uh, motorcycles, quad bikes, Polaris bikes, that type of vehicle asset. Your air is by parachuting into an area, and they've now done a lot of operate. Well, I know they've done operational drops in Afghanistan as well as elsewhere, so parachuting in. And the other thing which makes them different to a conventional force is that special forces are able to free fall from altitude, a much higher altitude, rather than a static line jump, um, the way the paratroopers would do. And they also have a sea capability where they're able to insert basically you know, from a submarine in scuba gear. So the idea is that they can get into any environment, um, whether it be hot, wet, let's say, or whatever. Um, they can operate in any condition and uh, they can move at short notice. So in addition to the different, say with the SAS, for example, in addition to different insertion methods, they also have guys who are specially trained as uh, climbers and rappelling, um, mountain climbing troops. So you can move into mountains and to operate at altitude, which they did a fair bit of in Afghanistan. They can also train in an urban environment to repel from buildings, and you see this with the cap their counter-terrorist capability. And the advantage of, say, special forces when compared to conventional forces is that, say, with the SAS as well as the commandos, they are what's described as a force multiplier. So you can have a small number of men, say 100 or so operators, but they're trained in multiple different ways. So again, you could come in by a helicopter, uh, rappel down a building, break in through a door. They can do all these different tasks with just one or two operators, three or four operators. You don't need a, a larger group. And that's what, why part of the reason why special forces are attractive because they have a smaller footprint. You need less men in the country, but they can do a range of different things. Oh, and also close protection too. So you know, providing bodyguards has been a, a big part of their work in Iraq and Afghanistan as well as East Timor. So they have a trained to do lots of different things in lots of different ways and lots of different areas and can go in just a couple of hours. Um, that's, I think, why they seem to be 
the force of choice or the capability of choice. And there's also a perception too that because they are so well-skilled and now so experienced, if you keep in mind that what um, Australia Special Forces has been doing for the last, or our Special Operation Forces, to be more technical, the last decade or so have had continuous deployments. So they're quite an experienced force. And I think that means that there's a less risk of things going wrong because think about it. If you're an elite athlete, um, you know, you're representing, you're playing Australia, you peak of your fitness, your experience, you know what you're doing, you get out into a playing field, you're less likely to make mistakes. Same thing in a military situation. These men and these operators can take two years to be qualified. They're pretty impressive guys. So that's why I think they're so attractive. Attractive from a military asset point of view. So can you tell us about some of the notable early covert operations that the first special forces units took part in? So really, if you think back to the Second World War, the most famous special forces raid would have to be um, Operation J-Week. So this was in September of 1943, a small group of Australian and British personnel uh, led by Major Ivan Lyons, who was actually a British Army officer. He led a small band of men um, on the fishing boat crate. They left Darwin, sailed through Japanese-occupied waters, um, came close to Singapore Harbour. They then disembarked from the crate into a series of three canoes, like little foal boats, sneak into Singapore Harbour in the middle of the night, lay their limpet mines on the side of um, seven Japanese vessels. The mines explode. Seven Japanese vessels are either destroyed or sunk, uh, and then the party escape very successfully. So, writably, has become quite a famous operation. Um, Post-war, it was certainly celebrated. There's been uh, TV shows about it, um, documentaries, a film. The flip side to Jake, though, is that it was conducted in great secrecy. So, it was never talked about during the war. It's only after when the war ends that JWIC was publicised to the Australian public. So you don't get that. Um, it didn't raise morale on the home front because people didn't know what occurred. Uh, and what happened, the, sort of the double edge to this, was the Japanese, after this raid, they thought they didn't think commandos could do it. So the Japanese thought there must have been local um, guerrillas who'd carried out this war. And so the Japanese then take out this punitive operation against um, the Chinese, Malays, as well as prisoners of war, because they thought there must have been local saboteurs. And about 80 innocent people are killed um, in the consequence or the follow-up from Jaywick raid. So Jaywick, very brave, incredibly brave man. I mean, think about it. They're leaving Northern Australia in a small wooden fishing boat Heading off to Singapore, the sea and the sky is full of Japanese ships and aircraft. They're travelling mainly at night. They have to paint themselves black to pretend they look like some local people. Um, deep into enemy territory, if anything goes wrong, there's no extraction point for them. There's no radios. They can't ring a submarine to get them out. This is all or nothing. It's a big gamble. The raid itself goes very well. They achieve what they wanted to achieve. So Jaywick, incredibly brave raid, but does have repercussions against a large group of innocent civilians and really inspires another raid, which was, again, equally brave, but also led to the death of about 20-odd very brave soldiers. Probably the high point of, of commando raids, certainly the best known operation. And it's what we would now describe to be a really good example of a joint and combined operation, which is what Special Forces are all about. So that means you have personnel who are Army and Navy, and there are Australians and also Brits. So the majority were actually British Army and Royal Navy, as well as a few members of the Royal Australian Navy and uh, a few members of Z Special Units, so Army soldiers such as Bob Page, for example. One of those characteristics of Special Forces is that they're often groups of small men, well, at this stage they're still men, 
but small number of soldiers often working with Army, Air Force and Navy and usually with their allies. Um, if, it, if it's for the insertion method, so a submarine, so an American submarine or an American aircraft or a helicopter in modern operations. Um, and then really you're not operating alone, you're operating in a small, highly trained team, mobile team, working with our allies. So what happened to these special forces following World War II? From Australia's point of view, much like the entire our entire wartime experience, and keep in mind too, this is a mass army during the Second World War, we had nearly a million men and women in uniform, half a million Australians served overseas. It's a massive event, incredibly skilled capabilities in terms of air crew as well as soldiers and Navy. Uh, but anyway, the war ends, the AF is disbanded, and everything's like, cheers, thanks chaps, here's your medals. Um, we'll just put this capability in a box and we won't think about it again. We won't really need it. So it really just disappeared. Uh, until the mid-1950s. And even with the formation of one commando company, a part of one commando regiment, that was part of the CMF, so the Army, basically the Army Reserve. And it was partly to develop this capability to raid, or raiding capability, because that's what the commandos are best known for. And then with the SAS, it was really, um, with the SAS company, when it was first formed, again, it was for uh, special reconnaissance or range reconnaissance. But the army itself didn't really know what to do with the capability. And it's not until the mid-1960s, partly with Borneo, the Borneo confrontation, when the SAS is first deployed, but more so with Vietnam, when um, they're given a task, which is really this long-range, deep reconnaissance surveillance, that the SAS are able to then show the army, these are the skills that we have, this is why we're quite a useful asset. And it's also in Vietnam too, we start to get a notion of, rather than just sort of supporting conventional forces, that what we would now call special forces um, are a unique capability and actually worth the investment. There's always been this tension between the special forces and conventional forces. So a, say the SAS or an infantry battalion, and you have people in an infantry battalion saying, look, if you give us the additional training and the additional weapons and the additional support, such as helicopters or aircraft or boats, we can do the same type of a job as this sort of small group of glorified pirates with their big beards and this Rambo attitude. So there's always been a tension between the two. And that also goes back to the Second World War. We had some commanders just thinking um, who were opposed to the use of special forces because they just saw your best and brightest being plucked out of a normal unit uh, to go in this sort of elite formation or a specialist formation. So there's always been a tension there. And in many ways, it comes to down to the commander on the ground to think about what is what assets do they have available, what's the task, and what's the best person, the best unit to, uh, to deliver these tasks, these roles. It's really in Vietnam where the SAS really cut its teeth. You had the Australian, the Australian task force who were deployed to um, Phuc Thuy province. The task force itself was based around Nui Dat, and so usually you had two or three infantry battalions going out into the countryside looking for the Vietcong, looking at the NBA. The role of the SAS, when they were used effectively, was not to go out to fight the VC or to fight the NVA, but really they were deployed deep into enemy territory. And when I say deployed, that usually means they were heading off into helicopters, they then rappelled down into, into the jungle. Um, sometimes they went uh, from the back of APCs, so the APCs would roll into an area, the SAS patrol would move out, then hit out into the bush. They're often in very small patrols, so you're talking up to four or five men, sometimes six, on reconnaissance. Occasionally they'd have a large patrol of about 10. That was more of a fighting patrol. Uh, and But really the SAS was not there to pick a fight. They weren't there to set an ambush. They did occur, but their main role was 
surveillance and reconnaissance. So they weren't not supposed to be seen, really more to um, report on track conditions, if there are crossings, to be commander's eyes and ears. So they would see an enemy, report on track conditions, report it back, so then the task force could go in and then have a big fight. The SAS patrols themselves were very lightly armed. They couldn't pick a fight with the VC. They were really just there to defend themselves if called upon. There were some quite notable actions, such as the tractor job, where they did lay a very successful ambush. And there was also another attack when, in the early 1970s, when the SAS went in and deployed in about 10 minutes blow up a, row, uh, a bridge, sorry, to cut the VC lines of communication. So operating Fukui province, also operating in the, um, in the Maytow Hills, doing a lot of work behind the lines. So it's that sort of surveillance work is what they do, not necessarily the direct assaults, which comes in much later, uh, say in Afghanistan. Uh, and I think the thing to think about too with Australia's capability and Australia's special forces is this role has changed over time and it's changed over conflict. It's not static. It's always moving. And this also goes back to those characteristics of special forces is that they need to be unconventional. They need to think outside of the box, um, which is why if you do get to meet any operators, there's sometimes that little bit more switched on um, than normal soldiers. So the SAS and commandos, though, they're the best of the best. But then within those groups, are there any separations between the best of the best of the best? Quite probably. <laughs> Even within the SA, the regiment, so it's the SAS regiment, um, as well as two commando, I'm sure there certainly would be that distinction. So the, the wider regiment in Perth, for example, they have, um, uh, there's also a lot of support staff. So you have signalers, medics, um, people who work in the office. There would be people who are posted to the regiment in Perth. And then from Perth, a squadron will go off to do the counter-terrorist work with TAG West. Um, another squadron may go off for Afghanistan, as was the case, and another one will be just waiting. So one, will, they work in a cycle. It's like a pre-deployment readiness. You have one unit which is deployed, and then the other ones come back part of their reinforcement cycle. So they've just come back from overseas, and so it's, they're constantly cycling through. So it's quite a big, um, a lot of people are involved. And once you start to talk about, you know, the gunslingers or the shooters or the operators, they're just sort of the rifle from themselves, the people who actually go out beyond the wire. So there would always be a sort of a sub unit. And we also need to talk about signalers too. So 152 Signal Squadron, for example, provides signals for the SAS since uh, since back in the day. Likewise, the signalers too for the one and two commando regiments. The best way I think about it sometimes like a sporting team, you have your different grades. And even within those grades, you always can have some star players who would just make magic um, and we've seen this when guys were talking about say ben robert smith for example knows the battle space can control and influence it quite clearly uh, and then cameron baird also from the two commander regiments seemed to be one of those soldiers one of those operators who just could take charge and other people looked at well they looked to him because he just knew what to do and just went out and did it it was that sense of experience and confidence i mean thinking about ben robert smith he used to say that we have said that from his point of view, fear is all about control. Once you recognise those symptoms of that adrenaline from being afraid, then you can learn those methods to control it. And he has used the analogy of um, sort of combat being a little bit like a sport, well, about like a football field. There's that sense of nervous energy before the operation starts. Once the operation begins, there's those first rounds. Then from his point of view, he could read the play. He knew the field, get a sense of, he knew how his team was going to respond and anticipate as to how the other guys are going to respond. He is in a bit of an exception. Um, but I think there's always going to be those playmakers who will just be natural leaders. 
So you've got all these um, different special forces, the SAS, the commandos, and then there's all the different nationalities and that. Do they ever integrate in the same task force? Um, they have different... Within, again, say with the task force in Afghanistan at different periods, you had... Uh, there was SAS company, commando company. There was elements from the logistics squadron who deployed. Um, later on, there was also B flight from Force Squadron RAAF. So these were Air Force personnel who um, provided JTAC, so that tactical control of airstrikes. So they're the guys who on the radio to call in an airstrike. The Special Operations Engineer Regiment, so your Special Forces Engineers, they would also deploy and they go, and you'd sometimes see them. So they'll be the ones out the front. They have an operator alongside, but you'd have the engineer maybe with a dog or maybe with a prodding stick, looking for mines, looking for IEDs, identifying where the threat may be, um, and then the operation will go on alongside it. Uh, and you also have medics and signalers as well. So you have quite a large group, uh, quite a large footprint. So there were several hundred in any of those SOTG rotations in Afghanistan. So they're not all SAS, they're not all commandos. Um, you have different people with different skills. So the commandos in the SAS, they have advanced training in signals and well, you're a salter, you're an assaulter, you are a medic or you signal. So they have a lot of the really good basic skills, more than a normal conventional soldier. But then they also have medics. And a lot of those medics, as that war went on, became have gone on to become doctors. So well, I can't name him because he has a protected identity. But I know one person who was a medic and with an SAS, with the SAS, who's then later on became a doctor, like a GP or a surgeon, I think now. So that's that. Because of that battlefield medicine, it's quite in, um, quite intense. So that's within our little footprint. Um, but most, probably if not all, of the operations that did take place in Afghanistan were done with um, American special forces, sometimes Canadian special forces, as well as the Afghan special forces as well. So it's really they're always a mixed bag. Um, sometimes it's just coming in with American helicopters, such as the VC action where Ben Robert Smith was involved. Other times, such as Operation Nile or Objective Perth, which was uh, Operation Nile was and Perth too. They were big battles for the commandos, the um, with two commando regiment. Sorry, uh, four RER brackets commando. Then they were done with Canadian special forces. So there's a lot of uh, crossover. They call it a tier one. So you have Australia, the United States, Britain, New Zealand, and Canada sort of the top tier of the special forces capabilities and so we're, we're right up there sort of playing with the big guys so in the world we rank up there yeah because in addition to our sort of our soft it's also that intelligence sharing capability uh, and the thing which is unusual is in afghanistan we were the third largest special forces so the americans were first then the brits and then there's the australians and what a lot of people don't probably aren't aware of is that as the war continued, um, and particularly from 2006 onwards when it was run by NATO, we had an Australian officer, like a, a brigadier or a one-star, he, at different times, they were running the NATO Special Operation Forces. So they were in charge of NATO SOF, and there were several of those people, such as um, uh, Major General Gus Gilmore, for example. He led the first... SAS deployment to Afghanistan in 2001, and a few years later he went back in command of all of NATO SOF. Um, so that's quite an impressive capability, particularly when you keep in mind, Australia, we're not part of NATO, and yet for different periods of the war in Afghanistan, we're running, or an Australian, I should say, an Australian is running the, the SOF war. You've got a strike team, put it together. Would you ever see the SAS and commandos in the same team together? 
remission? It's purely speculation. I don't really know. I suspect you'd see this with the counter-terrorist stuff. There were things such as the Pongsu, so that was a North Korean drug ship, uh, which we was seized several years ago off the coast of Australia. Um, it was running heroin, and I believe the planning for that was done by Tag East, so two commando out of Holdsworthy, but the execution was done by Tag West, so the SAS, because they came over from Perth to do it. So it's quite likely that they would, but in terms of an actual operation, I'm not entirely sure. So they've fought together in the same battles, such as Operation Perth and Shawali Cot, for example, but, but they had the commandos in one area and the SS in another area. So they're certainly fighting in the same battle and they share similar battle honours, uh, but they're not necessarily in the same trenches. But that's partly just from an organisational point of view. Post 9-11, a lot of the forces changed around with the counter-terrorism. Did SAS and commandos change separately to this sort of ordeal? Uh, post 9-11, you see an expansion of our special operations and our special operation forces, but more so after the Bali bombing. So in response, um, special operations command is established. And what so SOCOM, and that is a, is a joint combined headquarters. So before then, there was a thing called um, Headquarters Special Forces, which was really just Army Special Forces. Post Bali bombing, there was this need or a recognizing that the Army can't work alone, it needs to work with the Navy and the Air Force. They came together in the one headquarters, which was SOCOM, and you also had the expansion of our counter terrorist capability. So post Bali bombing, this is when the second tactical assault group or TAG is raised. Um, before then, it was just the SAS. Post Bali, the SAS would TAG what becomes TAG West. And then post Bali bombing, you have the commanders and, and TAG East, as well as the formation of the Special Operations Logistics Squadron. Likewise, with the Special Operations Engineer Regiment, so our Special Forces Engineers, they're actually established in the lead up to 2000 for the Sydney Olympics, um, because there's always, there's always been a terrorist threat. And Originally, they were a smaller unit. Uh, they then became the Incident Response Regiment. Uh, and then a little bit later in, in the noughties, they were renamed as Special Operations Engineers. So as that Special Forces capability has been deployed more actively, the command has expanded, the role has expanded. Has, this could be speculation, but has the forces ever operated within Australia on counter-terror exercises? Yeah, so with the Sydney Olympics... Basically, in a large international event, there seems to have been that special forces element. So the Sydney Olympics, the Commonwealth Games, heads of state visit, we know they have deployed domestically. You will have seen them sometimes in Sydney, the Blackhawks and dudes in black just hovering over the city. I suspect that they are doing a lot of work in the lead up to the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. So they're certainly going to be there, although you won't know about it. And that's the point. <laughs> In the era of drones and other unmanned aerial vehicles, how do special forces fit into modern operations? I think they would, historically we've seen, um, they would probably embrace, well, they would embrace that technology. They're always at the forefront. There's a great tradition of improvisation and innovation, picking up and developing weapon systems, uniforms, kit, really anything to help them adopt to a task. So one would think they're all over the drones and would using them because it does give you that what's on the other side of the hill look um, however until you have depending on the operational environment it may particularly from a surveillance point of view it may not replace the old sort of eyeball freeing it up having a look at it the advantage of what the SAS can do is to lie in that overwatch surveillance position 
for two or three days to look at a village, get a sense of its nuances, to see who comes and goes, to get a sense of that rhythm, and then to report and to identify if something odd takes place, such as a vehicle or a, a figure with a group of bodyguards, what looks to be bodyguards around them. And also keep in mind too that um, surveillance close protection is something which the SS and commanders are trained to do. So they can then recognise someone with that bodyguard entourage because they know how to do it themselves. So the advantage is having people, they can stay out there for days on end just watching. Whereas I don't think yet there is that capability from a drone. They can fly over and might be able to target people for a few hours, but probably not just sit there and just sit and watch um, in our hideout for a couple of days. But I'm sure they'd be all over that technology. But do the um, special forces have access to any form of advanced technology or technology that's like more advanced than what consumers have access to? One operator describes the special forces like as the ADF's battle lab. So what we have seen, for example, is the weapons and techniques and kit and equipment special forces have used when that works and works well, it then filters into the big army, conventional army. And we've seen this with patterns of uniform, for example, as well as weapons. So yeah, think of it as a battle lab. And if it doesn't work, it's sent back. There's a panel in an upcoming exhibit on Sergeant M in Operation Nile. What can you tell us about him? Very little. <laughs> so Sergeant M, um, he was a decorated Australian soldier during Operation Nile. He's always a commando, 4 RER commando. Um, major contact with Operation Nile one of his elements um, was involved in a very heavy fight. Sergeant A was subsequently awarded the Star of Courage, which is the second um, only to the Victoria Cross. The Sergeant A and his group were fighting for their life, they're surrounded by a Taliban. And uh, Sergeant M led a group of vehicles in to relieve Sergeant A. <laughs> um, but beyond that, there's not much of the story has been released. Sergeant M was wounded in that action um, and received quite a high decoration. Uh, and Sergeant M survived, did five tours of Afghanistan, wounded twice. So he's quite a soldier. Uh, we're lucky to have his uniform on display and to start to tell the story, but in terms of the detail, that still remains classified. So that's all part of the, this secret world of where they live in the shadows. Because they live in the shadows, when presented with medal or um, recognition for tasks and jobs that they've done, how do they... Oh, they do receive... Yes, yeah, certainly they receive their awards. So we've seen this with the Victoria Crosses for Australia presentation, but then to a lesser extent with other awards and ceremonies. So yeah, they do receive their medal. They do receive their award. Done in private though. Sometimes when they're released to the press, all you will see is the back of their head and a Sergeant A is all it's described. And then if you look up some of these citations on Wikipedia, for example, they're incredibly vague. It's really, unlike the, the Victoria Cross citations for the, the Second World War, for example, we have a blow-by-blow -blow account in the redacted versions that, that are released to the, to the public, um, there's not a lot of information. Likewise, I've not met a lot of them, but some of the operators who I've met who have received gallantry awards have been incredibly modest. Um, they all make the same remarks that they're really doing it representing the regiment and that anyone on that day in that action was equally brave, equally skilled. So the recipients that I've met have been modest, self-effacing and very reluctant to be put into the spotlight. I mean, they're not in the spotlight. Sergeant M is hardly in the spotlight. All we're really doing is like lifting the curtain and SOCOM are allowing us to have a little quick little peek before the curtain closes again. Victoria Crosses for Australia recipients, it's a different story. They now belong to the nation. And we've seen this with Mark Donaldson and Ben Robert Smith. I mean, both of them, have, they went 
on later to do subsequent operations in Afghanistan and other deployments. Um, Mark Donaldson still is still serving, but with the Victoria Cross, I mean that's a because it is such a high gallantry award. You know, for valor, it's the highest. The mystique that surrounds the award uh, and the rarity. I mean, only four Victoria Crosses for Australia have been awarded, one of those posthumously. So there's only three recipients. Incredibly rare, hence the interest. Uh, and they become very much public figures. And we've seen this with what they've done with their public profiles. You know, they're often ambassadors for one cause or another. With the Victoria Cross, you're a public person, whereas the other award recipients are still very modest. And in fact, they don't even put their, um, in the ones I've seen, they don't include their post nominals on their email footer. So very modest. And Carl, you have an exhibit coming up on Australia's Special Forces. Where is this going to be located? From the Shadows, Australia's Special Forces. is a history of Australia's Special Forces from the Second World War through to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and it will be on display in the Memorial's temporary exhibition space. So downstairs, right next to our permanent galleries on war in the Middle East, as well as Afghanistan. And it will be on display for, for 12 months, opening on the 12th of October, 2017, for a year or so. And how much of the Special Forces history will actually be on display? It's a teaser. So in terms of what we're able to actually tell, what we're doing, I think, is to offer with the support of SOCOM. So we're having a range of objects and vehicles on loan from the SAS regiment, as well as from two commando, one commando regiments directly and uh, special operations engineer regiment. So we're getting objects such as weapons, chest rigs, medals, a motorcycle that was used by a Taliban bomb maker. Any of these objects directly from the, our special forces themselves coming to camera to go and display for the first time together ever publicly. We look at the history of the Australia's special forces, then concentrate on the capabilities. So what makes special forces special? And then what have they done? So the implementation. And in terms of what they've done, East Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan, it's really what we know we've done. They've done other stuff, um, but it's all still very much squirreled away in the shadows. And in your wider studies of history, you've been published in a new book by Craig Stockings and John Connor. Yeah, that's quite exciting. So that was a chapter on Sid Rowell. Um, Rowell was uh, he's the first Duntroon graduate to go all the way through the Australian Army to become Chief of the General Staff. Rowell himself is a controversial figure. He was in command of New Guinea Force in September of 1942, so during those darkest days during the fighting at Papua, um, where there's fighting along the Kokoda Trail, as well as the fighting at Milne Bay. Rowell and uh, General so Thomas Blamey, Blamey was the Commander-in-Chief of the Australian Military Forces. Raoul and Blamey have a spectacular falling out. Um, Raoul is sacked, he's then sent off to isolation, is banished, ends up going to the UK for the rest of the war. Uh, but he survives, outlasts Blamey, uh, and then Raoul comes back. So he's quite a, a controversial figure. And Raoul is interesting because he, in many ways, his history is the history of the first half of the, of the Australian Army in the first half of the 20th century. He's very much a man of empire, serves in the First World War, he's a Gallipoli. Uh, he goes to Staff College, Quetta. Um, there's all those things that you would do with the British Army. So in many ways, he's an imperial soldier. Um, his view is not just as an Australian sort of nationalist, it's very much Australia as part of this wider context of the empire. And you see this is reflected in the Australian military up until the 1950s. So even when we go to Korea, for example, we saw there as part of the Commonwealth force, not, say, operating with the Americans. There's this great misconception that during the Second World War, Australia just dumps Britain for the United States. That's not the case at all. In many ways, the Australian-American alliance is a, a marriage convenience. It worked really well in 1942, great during 1943 in New Guinea. Uh, by 44, 45, that relationship was strained. 
And we see this where we deploy our forces to Korea, Raoul is the chief of the general staff. Um, we're in Korea and we're fighting alongside Brits and Canadians, um, more so than Americans. So we're still very much part of that wider British Commonwealth military experience. And Raoul's service represents, um, is a good case study just to show how plugged in we were as part of the empire. And what's the name of the book? The Shadow Men. Um, and really it's a collection of biographies looking at people who um, officers, senior officers who really shaped the Australian army, not necessarily the commanders or the battlefield commanders. So people such as Blamey, um, Morshead, Monash, for example, they've all incredibly important figures, but their stories have been told elsewhere. With this book, what Craig Stockings and John Connor did was really look at who are the those professional staff corps officers who really held um, the Australian army together and shaped it from really from the Boer War all the way through to the World Wars and into the, the modern era. Well, thank you for your time today, Dr. Carl. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. That was Thomas Kay speaking with Dr. Carl James on the history of Australia's Special Forces. I always recommend people make the trip to Canberra to visit the Australian War Memorial, and this exhibit is the perfect excuse. Do look up the Australian War Memorial online. They have a great social media presence on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We have collaborated with Carl before. He was interviewed for the documentary miniseries for School and Country, produced by the makers of this podcast. You can check out that World War II doco at www.forschoolandcountry.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to get all our interviews with Australian service veterans on Tuesdays and bonus episodes on Fridays. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and follow us on Twitter at LOTL Pod. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.